0: man you can be seated <clears throat> we uh am I on i am on we we are finishing out our series for this week that we started back right after Thanksgiving and and it was an advent series and it was really geared towards something more than advent it wasn't all christmasy it was really about looking towards the second coming or towards this towards Jesus return and 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 it was a special time. I think it was a good time for us around Christmas, building out of his first coming being the assurance of our second, or his second coming. But as we did it, we weren't trying to. I didn't want to develop uh, some long, big, big, built-out secondary perspective. I wanted us just to be able to end the season and start this new year with a a very basic understanding of the essential doctrine of Jesus's return. And so that's what we did. And week by week, we added to that. And so. We came to that conclusion, and and here's the the doctrine or the perspective that we built out. Jesus loves us and is coming for us. So live ready, because there is no greater prize. So Jesus loves us. His love, the Father's love, motivated His first coming. It motivated Christmas. It motivated Jesus coming into the world, putting on flesh, living and dwelling among us, humbling Himself to death, but... His love isn't just motivating that first, that, that first advent or His first coming. It is actually what motivates His return. He loves us enough, not just to have come once, but to come again and take us unto Himself. He loves you that much. He wants to spend eternity with you. That is sounds. I mean, that's good news. That should comfort you and encourage you that there is a day coming that's going to be better than today. And if today's a good day for you, it's going to be better. If today's a bad day for you, it's going to be better. There is a better day coming. That should comfort and encourage us. But he also warned us so that we could live every moment ready, so that we could be ready whether he comes now or whether he tarries. We should be ready, he told us. He challenged us, encouraged us, taught us so that we would be ready at a moment's notice or ready to leave a gospel legacy behind us in the event that he Waits. And so that's the, that's the way we, we went through that. And then finally, he says, do this, be ready for it, be prepared for it, because there is no greater prize. And the truth is, is that's true, but it's not exactly true, because it's there is no other prize. If you come in second in this race, you are really the first loser. That's the truth of it. There is no other. There's not a. There's not a reward for second place. There's not a. There's not a, a chance to to do something different. There's not a, a, a an amendment or a, a, an appeal that you can offer. There's no other prize. Jesus is coming. Live ready because He is your prize. And that's that's the the perspective of his teaching of the kingdom. Now, it doesn't answer every question, and I get that. I I get that it doesn't give us all the details, and it doesn't go into the depth of his teaching, or even the the apostles' teaching as as they continue to write Scripture after he ascended. I, I get that there's more things that we could talk about. But in that doctrine, it gives us a basis, a foundation, from which we now can live every day expectantly. And in fact... That was that began to be the question in fact, we started last week in this two part perspective of what do we do then as we wait, what do we do what what's our role here what's why did he leave us this long? I mean for most of us we've been waiting all our life we may not have realized we've been waiting, but we have been not most of us all of us have been waiting all of our life for this to happen you didn't know you were waiting maybe at one time, but this has always been the point what his what from, for which history is looking forward to, is his return. So for 2,000 years now, we have been waiting. And he's left us here for a reason, so what are we to do until it happens? What are we supposed to be about doing? And so we began to answer that question last week. We answered it from the book of Acts, chapter 1, where, where Jesus ascends into heaven, speaks to his disciples, and gives them their role, their purpose, their, their thing to do as they wait. He says, go, go. You'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses. And while he is specifically speaking about a special moment where the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on them and they were going to, to receive this special power to do these miraculous and powerful things, there's a principle for every one of us still today. So as we wait, we, as God's people, as people of the kingdom of God, are, are, are recipients of his power, and therefore we are expected to be witnesses of his miraculous ability. We are to be able to speak about what he has done. You don't have to be a theologian that studied for 40 or 50 years and and gone through seminary and earned uh, 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 a long list of credentials behind your name. You don't need all of the letters that can follow your name to be a witness of God. You simply have to have experienced his power. We just sang a song, and I didn't notice this in the first service, but the the first verse of the last song that we sang Starts out. I've heard the things they say about you. Something along that. You can put it up behind me if you want to, because that, they'll actually be able to see what it really says, and not just what I remember it to say. But I've heard the whisper. Your, put it up there, because I'm, I'm going to mess it up. First verse of the last song we sang. First screen. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. You see, you're a witness as a child of God. You're a witness to this. You're not just a person who's heard the story. You're a person who's in the tender. You've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. You have experienced his power. You have a story to tell. If you know Jesus, if you know that he died for you, if, that, that he rose and provided eternal life for you, if you are following him, if you see him as king, as Lord, as one who is coming, you didn't come to that by your own understanding. You came to that by the expression of God's power in your life. And so now he says, go and be my witness. Proclaim your story. Tell your story so that the world can hear it. That's what he wants. That's what he calls us to. And so we saw that what we believed should change and should motivate then what we say and what we speak. But it doesn't end with what we say. It extends to what we do, and that's really what the focus of today will be about. What do we do if, as witnesses, as the people who are proclaiming the goodness? What do we actively do? What do we make ourselves busy Doing. And that's what we're going to be studying today as we consider our kingdom practice. We're going to be studying from 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Let me give you a little context of what this letter or the people that received this letter, they they, they were dying because of what they believed. Peter wrote this letter to a church that was scattered. You can read about it in Acts. And in in Acts, the church starts and it flourishes, it grows to a, a massive number really quickly. And then they begin to be persecuted by the Jews, and they get scattered. You can see about it in Acts 6 and 7, maybe 8. I can't remember exactly where it's at, but Stephen gets martyred, and it says that the church is scattered at that point. And they're all over the place. And Peter writes to this church that's scattered and that is suffering greatly for what they believe. In fact, there's stories, there's records of the early church. Under under Roman rule, the church suffered horrendous attacks because of what they believed, because they believed that Jesus was the Christ, that he had died in their place for their sins, that he'd risen again, providing them eternal life, and that he is Lord and now is the preeminent and primary authority over their life. Well, that clashed with what the Roman government wanted their people to believe. They would rather hear Caesar is Lord than Jesus is Lord. In fact, they were emperor worshipers. They were people who said that Caesar was divine, and so so they would expect the people of Rome to worship this emperor, and and it clashed with the Christian perspective, and so Rome says, well, we're going to put an end to that. We're going to end it, and so they begin to attack them. There are stories of of the suffering and the violence that they endured. For example, they were wrapped in animals' clothing and placed in in coliseums and and uh, competitions against living animal uh, against lions, and they were Killed and eaten by uh, by animals in, for entertainment. They were impaled on stakes and and then covered in tar and oil and lit on fire so that they could light the streets of Rome at night. So so they were suffering horrendously. And you might think, well, a church that suffers that greatly, I mean, we got we gotta do something. We gotta change something. We gotta we gotta work this out so we don't suffer as much. You might think that Peter's gonna write a letter that says, okay. We need, to be, we need to be thinking about our public image. We need to quit being quite so offensive. We, we, we need to just quit going on about Jesus as Lord. We, we probably better just quit talking about it. That's not the letter he wrote at all. In fact, he wrote a letter that called them to such a life of holiness that would make them even more distinct and make them bigger targets for the, for the nation of Rome or for the Roman government. And that's kind of where we pick up. Why would he do that? Why would it be so important for them to live lives of holiness? Lives that that demonstrate their faith out loud. That's where we pick up in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 7. It says, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Okay, we're going to stop there. Just take a second and think about what that means. The end of all things is at hand. I could rewrite that and it say Jesus is coming. He's going to arrive at any minute. That's what he means. He's speaking about the, the culmination. It's, it's not speaking about some blip along the timeline. He's talking about the culmination of the timeline when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. That is at hand. It is near. In fact, the language he uses, it says the end is imminent. His return is imminent. Therefore, because of that, be self controlled, so reminded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, in everything, underline that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is it. Why? Why don't we why don't we back off? Why don't we cower in the shadows? Why don't we quit living so faithfully out loud? Why don't we just gather in our houses and not and not talk to our neighbors? Why don't we just get together and not try to talk about Jesus as Lord? Why don't we quit pasting that and putting that on walls around the city? Why don't we just hide from Rome? Why would we live this holy, faithful life? Because the end is at hand you see the the thing is we ask questions about when we're going to get to the end days when is the end days going to begin and we we look for signs and oh well when we see the antichrist we'll know the end is near and no the biblical perspective has always been the, the the authors of the bible have always demonstrated that we are there You are in the last days. John writes about it as the last hour. We are here. That's the biblical perspective. That's the New Testament perspective that at any moment, before I finish my next sentence, before I come to the end of this sermon, before I can say another word, before I can take another breath, that he might come back. The end is at hand. His return is imminent. And Peter calls the church to this. He he says, This is why we do what we do. Live with this kind of urgency. Live with this kind of this, this kind of priority because Jesus is coming. He's, he wants us to think that way. But I I have to admit, I I don't always live that way. <laughs> In fact, to to just be frank and to be completely honest, I've been studying this passage of Scripture, this this letter of the Bible, I've been studying for years and years and years. One of my favorites. I've been reading it and rereading it and reading commentaries on it and dissecting the Greek through it and trying to understand it. There was a period where I read it for six months straight, over and over and over. Every day I read it at least once, every day for about six months straight. And every time I came to it, even at the end of the six months, I'm seeing something new and being punched in the gut with something new, and well, that's so amazing. And I know that that passage is there. And I know that there's a call to urgency there, but but I know I don't always live with that kind of urgency. And I'd I'd venture a guess that most of the church, most of our church, maybe even you, individually, don't live with that sense of urgency. I mean, let's just think about it. Own it for just a minute. Take responsibility in it. I mean, just think, when, when you bought your house, if you're a homeowner, maybe you're not a homeowner. But, but if you're a homeowner, and when you bought your house, I mean, where did the end of all things is at hand factor into if that's the right house for you or not? It didn't for me. And when I bought my house, this is what I thought about. I wanted it to look nice on the outside. I wanted it to look nice on the inside. I wanted to know what school district it was in because I didn't want the boys to have to move. I wanted to know that I'd have the ability to resell it at a profit at some point. I didn't think about Jesus coming back at all. I I oftentimes spend my day doing things that if Jesus returned in the middle of them, be like, man, Jesus, you should give me a few minutes. I could have been doing something for you. How much time do we waste? Really think about how much time do we waste. And I'm not saying how much time do you have free. I'm saying how much time do we use for things that aren't eternally significant. How? How how much energy energy do we expend on things that are just going to burn up like chaff in the end. Let's really just take stock for a minute. In what ways are we investing and spending money with this imminent return in mind? Yeah, see, I think, I think in all the study I've done of this letter that Peter wants us to live with this full-on view of, the, of this truth. Jesus is coming. Let that inform everything you do. And so from that, from that idea, he builds out this bucket list. And so I, I hope that if you've got a bucket list, this, these are the things that you'll put on it. You see, typically when we build bucket lists, it's about i got to get to the other side of the world because I've never been anywhere other than, well, I've been a lot of places, but i got to go someplace. I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon. I've never seen the Grand Canyon except from the air. I'm, before I die, I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon. Before I die, I'm going to learn a new language. Before I die, it's always these things, these accomplishments that really could be eternally significant, but most oftentimes they're they're built around us. And I think Peter gives us this bucket list, this this list of things that are so foundational. It's so, so fundamental that maybe those things are on your list, and, and that, that's not anything wrong with them being on your list if, if they're motivated by these things. He says to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, that means exactly what it sounds like. Self-control. You know what self-control is, right? I mean, I'm able to not do the things I don't want to do and uh, fight for that. Sober-minded has, means to have a, a balanced perspective. It could mean that we don't get drunk and and we stay sober, excuse me. But but I think what it really means is that we have a balanced perspective. See, we're 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 not the people who hear that Jesus is coming back and run to the skyscrapers in New York and stand on there on them in our pajamas with signs hold up that that are pronouncing the end. That's ludicrous, right? I mean, that's silliness. We're not the the, the people that hear Jesus is coming back and just run off and build a bunch of debt so we can buy the Corvettes and the big houses and the fancy, fancy uh, yachts and the stuff that make us feel good for the moment. We're not the people that just turn around and sell everything we have because he might tarry. But we're a people who live with a balanced perspective, a, a wisdom that comes from him. You see, that's what I think he's calling us to. See, I, I think that what he's calling us to is, is this idea that we, we live out godly character. That we live like Jesus would have lived. In fact, if I were to summarize this, uh, just a point for you to take away. I, I, because Jesus will return at any moment. I think we should live like Jesus in every moment. I think that's what Peter's goal is for us personally. Because he could come back at any time. Because it could happen before we walk out the door. Every moment should be about striving to emulate him and follow his example. It could happen anytime. Anytime. So live like Jesus. And there's that personal perspective, that personal responsibility, that personal character that, that he calls us to. And that's the first circle. But in this bucket list, he doesn't just focus on you. He doesn't, in fact, he doesn't focus mainly on you. But he starts with you. And he calls you to this biblical, godly character. And then he expands the circle. And he says, love each other. Now, if it's on our bucket list, most people in the world would put on their bucket list, I want to be loved by somebody. Right? I mean, that's what we do. Who's loving me? How am I being loved? You're responsible to love me. Peter doesn't even give us that qualification. In fact, he he doesn't even make it clear that you've ever been loved by another person. Through the letter, he's made it clear that you're to love one another. Whether you feel loved or not. Look, you've been loved. You are being loved. Loved. Jesus loves you. He's encouraging you and comforting you with the confidence of his return. He's paid the price for your sins. He's he's made you whole. He's cleansing you and sanctifying you. His spirit resides in you. You are loved. And now he says, turn around and love somebody with that. Give somebody what you've been given. In fact, that's the, the way he terms it. He's calling us to love one another like Jesus has loved us. This sacrificial effort, this sacrificial, beneficial effort for another person's best interest. Not when it's easy for you. In fact, I think if we're not sacrificing, we can't call it this kind of love. Not when it comes back to you. Not not when you have something to gain in it. In fact, I think if your primary motive is to see somebody to see a return on it, to see your best interest and you're you're using the person more than you're benefiting them, then I don't think we can call that this kind of love. He calls us to this godly agape love. Now, 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 now don't don't hear me saying you'll just be loving everybody and if this works the way it's supposed to, You'll be loved by all the people who are striving to love you like Jesus loved them. You shouldn't be left wanting. That just shouldn't be our primary goal. Our primary goal. In fact, he says it above all things. Love each other deeply. So you love each other like Jesus has loved you. I, I heard a story, and I don't, I don't know. Um, I, mean, I, I didn't tell the story in the first service because I knew I was going to be short on time. I'm going to tell the story now. It'd be good for you. I, I heard this story recently. I think it was on the Today Show, or I saw a video, and it's, I, I don't know even. It's been a been a little bit ago since since I first saw it, but I, I heard a story about this uh, family <clears throat> that was was uh, taking their infant on a plane ride. And the way I heard the story was actually someone wrote an article telling people don't do that, and they were. The lady who wrote the article was talking about, you know, that babies, they cry. That's just what people should be used to, it, and and it's okay. And she's right. We should be okay hearing a baby's cry. But I don't think it's okay to tell somebody not to act sacrificially in the interest of other people. I mean, that would be the same as telling Jesus, don't come die for them. Don't set yourself aside in what would be easiest and best and, and most comfortable for you. Don't set, don't, don't set yourself aside like that. In fact, the idea of the article was that this family brought these goodie bags. They brought the baby on the plane. They brought these goodie bags with earplugs in it and a note from the baby, from the baby's perspective. And It was a cute little note. And It's probably not something I would have even thought to do. But this family did. Because they cared enough about the people sitting around them. To think about them. And then somebody actually says, I think, has the nerve to say, you should think about yourself first. You should promote yourself. They should just deal with it. It's paramount of saying it's the same as saying don't love one another. Don't love each other. But that is not what we've been called to. Now, the truth is, is that the people sitting in the plane, if they're all Christians and this is a, a church family and, and things are the way they should be, that the people sitting in the plane should hear the baby crying and be fine with it. In fact, they might be thoughtful enough and loving enough to try to do something to support the mother who has the crying baby. But love is a two-way street and it requires our, us to set ourselves aside to care enough to, to, to think of someone else. In fact, I think Paul gives us a good formula for it in the book of Philippians, uh, of what this love should actively look like. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing in such a way that it's about your gain. You know, oftentimes when we act and interact with people, we act out of fear. Well, I don't want to do this or I don't want to say that because I don't want to be rejected or I do want to be approved. I want to be affirmed. I want to be liked. I want to maintain this relationship. And so I'm not going to speak truth to you. I'm not going to reach out to you. I'm not going to put myself at risk because I'm afraid of what I'll lose. That's self-preservation. Or sometimes we interact with people with with manipulation and control and and we get people, we say the things that they want to hear and we do the things that they want us to do so that they'll then turn around and do for us what we want them to do. That's manipulation and control. That's that's self-exaltation. I want what I want, so I'm going to do what I need to do to get it. That's not what he's calling us to. It shouldn't be about what you receive. Do nothing from selfish ambition. And that nothing, that's a universal term that means not one thing. Okay, I mean, you get that, right? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I think that's crossed out on the screen. It's meant to be underlined. Count others more significant than yourselves. And you know that's hard, isn't it? To look at somebody else and say, they're more important than me. They matter more than me. I am so content. I am so satisfied. I am so blessed in Christ that that person matters more to me than I matter to me. That's big. Let each of you, not just a few, but each of you, look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So making their interests it's as important. It's not that your interests are never taken into account. It's not that, not that your interests are, are always ignored. But that your interests, their interests, are, are, are as good as yours, as important as yours, as, as worthy of fighting for as yours. It requires us to look at things from their perspective, to understand things from their perspective. Let me just give you a, a way that I think this kind of works out practically. Every Sunday, we struggle with this when we're trying to figure out. Amy and I struggle with this when we're trying to figure out where to go eat. I know this seems simple, but it truly happens. And so we'll be like, oh, where are we going to eat? She's like, oh, I don't care. I'm like, yeah, you care. (laughs) I know you care. And so rather than love her and think about her interests and what she might like, I don't love her well. I'll just be honest, this is not the example to follow, so just what not to do? I start picking places I know she doesn't want. How about Chinese? She doesn't like Chinese. I know she's not going to want to eat Chinese. How about Italian? No, not Italian. And, and I know she's going to say no to those things, and, and I'm going to point out, well, see, it matters. So where do you want to eat? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But am I the only one that does that kind of thing? I hope not, <laughs> or else I sound cruel. Now, here's the, here's the reality. What would be more loving? Wouldn't it be more loving to me consider what she longs for, what she likes, what she's interested in, and proactively pick it as opposed to passively just stand by and see if it happens? You see, that's what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to passively just let things happen. He's calling us to proactively put it into action for the best interest of another person. So I think, I think that that's what he means when he says love each other. And we got to, we got to point this out because the circle gets bigger. You know, it, it got bigger from you to each other. And who's the each other? That's the, the brothers and sisters, the people you gather with, your family in Christ, it's not that Peter or it's not that Peter's writing and saying you shouldn't love people outside the church. Jesus said love your enemies, so we can't think that he's countermanding what Jesus said. But he's saying give priority, yet make certain that it starts right here, the people you gather with week in and week out, your neighbors who are believers. They may belong to another church, but their Christian brothers and sisters love them. Proactively work for their good. The people that you gather in community group with and and that you do life with, that you're on mission with, that you're following and believing in Jesus with, love them. Love them. You love them because Jesus is coming. His return is imminent. Love them. Make a priority out of this. And then he says practice hospitality. And here the, the circle broadens a little further. It's no longer about that immediate family, that, that immediate church family, the immediate brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's about the strangers. It's about those people who are outside the circle, about those people who don't belong yet. See, there's a reality, and, and, and I, I don't have any way to, to make anything like this happen on the outside of the church, but, but I have some authority here, and, and so I'm going to use this as an illustration, but it shouldn't be just in the church that hospitality happens. The reality is, is that, that there's not a person that sits in this room that is a member of this church that didn't at some point have to come and experience their first time here. And their fourth and fifth and tenth and fifteenth time here. There's only three people in the church like that. One of them's me, one of them's my wife, and one of them's Billy Kimmons. And we were the original part of the original five that started this church. The other two have gone back to their home church. And, and so there's only three people that didn't have to have their first time. Visiting with this church. Everybody else has had to come in. You see, at one time you were an outsider. And, and Jesus is telling every one of us, not the pastor who's paid, not the, not the music leader, not the, not the people singing on stage. He's telling every one of us, it is our responsibility It is our responsibility to to make room for the people on the outside. For those of us on the inside, for those of us who are home, it's our job. It's our responsibility to do this. And and then he says, do it willingly. He doesn't say, when you're willing to do it, do it. He just says, do it willingly. That means if you're not willing, get willing. Right? Just go ahead and change your mind now. Okay, I'm going to do this. And if you're doing it because I said to do it, do it because you better change your mind about that too and do it because you want to do it. That's what he says. So one way, let me just share with you a couple of examples I, I think we need to work on as a church. One way Amy and I are going to do that, every visitor card from now on, every visitor card we receive once a month, we're going to have a meal in our home and we're going to invite those who have visited to our home and feed them and sit and talk with them and get to know them. That's what we're going to do. It's not, I, I, I don't know that all of you need to do that. Maybe some of you do. I, but, but I do, I, I will expect that every one of our people, we have a hospitality team to kind of give organization to this. But here's the reality. You all belong to the hospitality team. You all belong to the hospitality team. So, If you're standing by the door and a visitor walks in or somebody you don't recognize, they're the stranger, you're called to love them. You're responsible to love them, to greet them, to make them feel welcome, to show them that there's room here for them. If you're standing in the gathering room drinking on your coffee and you're talking to somebody in our information team who right now is Bob and Pam and they're, and they're visiting with a visitor that's been brought to them from the door greeters and they see you standing in there, if they recognize you and they know that you're a part of this church, I'm telling them and I'm telling you right now, in front of everybody, you go to somebody and introduce those visitors to them and say, hey, why don't you show this person around? So you know that's going to happen. It should be happening and you should be okay with it. Be willing, he says. To extend this hospitality. Oh, and, and just in case you think you can get out of it by not standing at the door or coming in here before the service begins, let me just tell you, if you're standing in here and I'm in here and I see you and there's a visitor standing here, that's 5, 10, 15 minutes that they show up early because they think people show up early for things. I know our church doesn't typically do that, but, but if you're in here, I'm going to make sure that you talk to that visitor and make them feel welcome. I'll just ask you how you doing with your hospitality. And so what I think that might mean is a lot of us will start showing up even later because you don't want to do that. But you can deal with God on that. Because Jesus is coming back. Practice hospitality willingly. Love the stranger willingly. Now, it shouldn't stop in this building. Right? You should be loving strangers because once you were a stranger who was loved by Christ and brought into the family. That's the perspective. Jesus is coming back. It's a great place to practice it right here, though. You're safe here. I might tease you a little bit. I might love you a little, little bit by challenging you. But you're safe. Practice hospitality and get comfortable practicing hospitality. Serve selflessly is the last third the third perspective. Is so, it, so it broadens, you know, and it goes, it goes from you and it broadens. And it bronzed a little further. Now he says serve selflessly. And, he's, and the service, he's saying you, you serve with whatever you've been given, with whatever God's done in you. Serve as a steward of God's grace in its various forms or, or his, his manifold grace or his, just, just the way that his grace is demonstrated. You have been given it. You are a bearer of God's grace. He's now saying turn around and, and give that to somebody. Let them tangibly experience God's grace. You see, we talk about God's grace and and, and psychologically and and theoretically we we experience God's grace as we think about the the salvation we have in Christ But, but Jesus didn't want it just to be about the theory and the thought and the knowledge of His grace. He wanted you to feel it. So you know what He did? He empowered His people with it. That they might bestow it on one another. That they could turn around and give it away. So that as his grace is being shared, his glory is being shown. how, How does the world know that God is gracious? Well, they can hear about it from us. But they should see it and experience it from us as well. Why? Why did? It, why are we doing these things? Why would we serve this way? Why would we give ourselves up like this? That God's gifts are, aren't given so that we look good, but so people are able to know that He's good. That's why we do it. It's about His glory. Jesus is coming, and people need to see His glory because there's no greater prize. Now, I'm going to take just a second. Now, th- this affects your whole life. And we've talked about it. I've already brought it up. I, I, I told you in the beginning that this is not just about the, the, the time and the energy and what we do. as as much as, It's just as much about the money. That It affects our whole life. And so as we look towards this new year, as you read about the initiatives that we're going to take on in, in the bulletin and the announcements, there's a reality that that we need to recognize, not just with how we serve and how we love, how we use our money is a big part of that.